Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The ability that we have to give Hashem joy, to give Hashem nachas. So we can evoke such a powerful response within Hashem. As insignificant as we are, inherently, innately, we have the ability to evoke, to stir a response within Hashem, to evoke a response within Hashem. And what a, what a response, a joyful response. Joy is something that permeates the whole being. In other words, Hashem Himself is like dancing with the joy. That we, we got it. We passed the test. We figured out the enigma. We figured out the riddle. We saw through the darkness. We weren't taken in by the darkness. When the child proves his wisdom and doesn't take the hiding, God is hiding, but he doesn't take it literally that God is hiding because he disappeared in us, but understands that he's hiding because he's playing hide and seek with us. He wants us to seek. And when we continue to seek, and then we find, and imagine the joy that the king has, our father has, that we have the wisdom to be able to see through the superficial surface reality. He says, and especially, this is where we left off last week, and especially, this is especially true for those Jews who live outside the land of Israel. Because it's one thing if you live in the land of Israel. Israel is a holy land. Israel is a place where godliness is more transparent. But when you live outside the land of Israel, it's a land where godliness is much more concealed. And halachically, there is an impurity. Not according to the individual, it's according to the very fact that you're on that particular land. Just stepping in the land of Israel, just breathing the air of the land of Israel, just walking six cubits, six feet in the land of Israel, for four cubits, six feet in the land of Israel, there's a holiness there. There's a tremendous holiness. Of course, everything depends on the person. The greater the holiness, the greater the challenge. You always have the counterforce. Every positive has a negative. So the greater the holiness, that's why there's no, there's some, some areas there's no greater decadence than in the land of Israel. The land of Canaan before was the land of Israel was the most decadent in the, in the place in the entire world. So, so it can be either way. In Israel, you can be the holiest of the holiest, or in Israel, you can be the most decadent of the decadent. But it's all because Israel is so holy. Israel, everything is transparent. Godliness is much more transparent in Israel versus outside the land of Israel. Outside the land of Israel, as the Talmud says, the land of Israel is, you're in the palace of the king. You're living in the palace of the king. Of course, you feel, you sense the presence of the king much more in his palace than you do outside of the palace. Outside of the palace, the king projects his image, but the palace, that's his palace, that's his home. Israel is God's home, it's God's palace. Of course, God is palpable. As the Torah says, God's eyes are constantly on the land. The whole world is blessed through the land of Israel. Israel is the center of the world, the heart of the world. Outside the land of Israel, you have a sense of impurity. Impurity in the sense that it's, it's a greater disconnect. Am I to believe that those Sadiqim that lived, I don't know, Vilna or ever had any less revelation then the very fact that a Jew gets off Elal and steps into the Tel Aviv airport, suddenly he's in the land. Because I think it's so important for the individual to be connected and 
going to Israel is a major connection, but I, I in no way would, would want to say that those tzaddikim, or even the simple father who transmitted Jewish values to, to his family, that that is any less sacred or any less connected or any less making God visible in, 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 in that sense. To give you an analogy, it's like on Shabbat. Shabbat is a holy day. On a holy day, godliness is much more accessible. Now, of course, it all depends on you. You know, if you spend Shabbat just sleeping through the Shabbat and not doing anything, then it'll just go right past you. But the Shabbat, the day itself, the atmosphere of the day is just a holier atmosphere. It's much easier. It's much more accessible. Versus on a weekday, you have to struggle a little harder. To access godliness, to experience godliness, to sense godliness, you have to work a little harder. On Shabbat, it's, 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 at, it's at your fingertip. It's, it's at the, you know, on your sleeves. It's, it's available. It's accessible on a holy day, on a holiday. Just like it's true in time, it's also true with certain people. Certain people who are the tzaddik. To him, godliness is accessible. He wears it on his sleeves. Versus a person who's not a tzaddik has to struggle with it. And the same is true with space. In a holy space, in a synagogue, which is a holy space, godliness is much more accessible. It's your own godly soul is much more accessible. When you're in a synagogue, especially when you're in a synagogue on Shabbat, especially if you're in a synagogue on Shabbat with a tzaddik, with a rebbe, then, then you have, like on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, with the holiest Jew, the high priest, entering into the holiest spot on earth, in the holy of holies. You can imagine that triple combination. Imagine how easily it is to access your divine spark that's inside of you. Versus on a regular Wednesday afternoon, it's there, it's always there but it's more difficult to access. So the same, the same is true with Israel versus outside of Israel. Israel, the land itself, is holy. There's no, there's no arguing it. There's no place in the world like Israel. Israel is the holy land, period. No one calls Las Vegas holy. No one calls New York holy. No one calls Moscow holy. No one calls London holy. There's one spot on earth that the whole entire world calls the holy land because Israel is holy. There's no question about it. And therefore, godliness is much more available, much more accessible. But what we're learning here is that there's a method to the madness. There's a reason why the Jews went into exile. We didn't choose to go into exile. God sent us into exile. He, he kicked us out of Israel. He forced us out of Israel. And He's going to bring us back into Israel. When Mashiach comes, we're all going to move to Israel. It took a, a Hitler to get Jews out of blood-drenched Europe. Every inch in Europe is soaked with Jewish blood. But it's going to take a Mashiach to get Jews out of Park Avenue move to Israel. <laughs> then you know the Mashiach came. He hasn't come yet, obviously. We're still sitting here. But there's a method to the madness. But there was also in Germany. Yeah, that's, right. that's true. That's true. That's true. But there's, but there's, but, 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 no, Mashiach is going to bring us. We're not, it's not going to come from pogroms. Mashiach is going to take us out of here in a good way, in a joyful way. But that, then you know the Mashiach really came, the real Mashiach came. But the point is, there's a method to the exile. There's a method to the madness. If you follow Jewish history, the first thousand years after the destruction, Jewish life, the center of Jewish life moved from Israel, shifted from Israel to Babylonia, Iraq, which is the cradle of civilization. That's where Abraham began. The Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, Iraq. And that's where Jewish life flourished, close proximity to Israel for a thousand years. Then Jewish life shifted from Iraq, Babylonia, to Western Europe, France, Germany. That's where Rashi, the Toysvahs, 
And then North Africa, the Sephardic Jews, Maimonides, North Africa, Spain, North Africa. Then Jewish life after the Spanish Inquisition, Jewish life shifted from Western Europe to Eastern Europe. That became the new center of Jewish life. After World War II, where Jewish life was decimated in Eastern Europe, and starting with the pogroms earlier, people started leaving in the masses and immigrated to America. America became the new center of Jewish life. And the whole Baltruva movement actually started right here in New York. The whole renaissance of Jewish life all over the world today, that miracle started right here in New York, outside of the land of Israel, here in America. In the 60s, and college campuses, the Chabad houses and college campuses, the first Baltruva Yeshivot, well, that whole revolution and that sparked the renaissance of Jewish life that we're witnessing today, where even the head of the reform movement a few weeks ago came out and said it's about time we should start keeping Shabbat. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's like Mashiach's times. All of this, this revolution started right here in America. So there's a method to the madness. Now the good news is, the good news is, that all our bases are loaded. We've covered all our bases. We're in the ninth inning. All the bases are loaded. And now we're waiting for the home run, the grand slam. Who's going to hit the grand slam? It could be you, it could be you, it could be I, it could be any Jew. And doing one extra mitzvah, you can hit the grand slam and hit it home for the entire Jewish people. Because our next stop is Israel. We've covered all our bases. Jewish life is flourishing in every corner of the world. But what we're, the method of the madness is, because if you think into the exile, it really makes no sense. The whole exile is completely illogical. Why? Because the way you look at it superficially, without chasidut, without studying the soul of the Torah, what's the idea of exile? As we say in the prayers, in our Musaf prayers, because of our sins, we were exiled. So it's a punishment. But that's a very superficial understanding. Because if exile is a punishment, the exile makes no sense. Because the way things work in punishment is that the initial punishment is the harshest, is severe. As time goes on, as you get closer to the release date, even in prison, you start giving the prisoners some leniencies, then you, you, you transition into parole, then you're in a halfway house, and then the person is completely free. If the exile was a punishment, the harshest punishment should have been immediately following the destruction of the temple. As we get closer to Mashiach, the exile should become lighter and lighter and lighter. Look at Jewish history, it's the exact opposite, the reverse. The first thousand years, the Jews were close to Israel, and Jewish life flourished. The Jews had independence in Babylonia. They had their own king like Reish Galusa. He was a scion of the house of David. He was even allowed to administer capital punishment. He was, the Jewish enclave had independence, autonomy. Then they moved a, a little further away, North Africa, Western Europe. Then things got darker. The Spanish Inquisition. Then you had Chamanitsky wiped out a third of, of Eastern Europe, the Cossacks. And then we had the Holocaust. most bitter, worst tragedy in our history. Six million. The best. The Shenstein, the best. The face of the Jewish people. The head got slapped. We got slapped in the face. And then things get worse. 
Look what's happening today. It's one thing in our history that we were exiled. The Greeks exiled us, the Romans exiled, the Babylonians exiled us. For the first time in Jewish history, we are exiling ourselves. In the annals of human history, you cannot find a single example of a nation exiling itself, negotiating its capital, and exiling itself, and surrendering to its arch enemies, the Arab Nazis. So we learn nothing from our experience. The whole reason the Etra of Israel is never again, what do we do? We cave in and surrender to Arab Nazis who hate Jews so much they don't want to see a Jew in front of their face. So we kicked out 10,000 Jews from their homes who took empty land, developed it, created an economical powerhouse. So to appease some Arab Nazi, Israel kicked out Jews from Israel. Because a Jew is allowed to live in Berlin, a Jew is allowed to live in Moscow. The only place in the world a Jew is not allowed to live only because he's Jewish is Israel. And we're negotiating Jerusalem, negotiating the Golan, negotiating the whole West Bank. I mean, this is madness. It's never happened. This is such an inner exile, a deep, dark exile. How alienated could a person be from his own core and his own essence that he has no pride, no belief in the justice of your own cause, no belief in your own Torah and your own God and your own truth and your own history and your own destiny and your own miracles. So it, it's getting darker and darker. So the question is, what's the logic of the exile? And the answer is there's a method to the madness. What's the method? Because it's in the exile, in this darkness, that this, when despite the odds, and despite the darkness, a Jew is able to find God. When a Jew is able to find God in Vilna, like you said, in the shtetl, not in Israel, in exile. When a Jew is able to find God in this milieu, when there's such a spiritual oppressive darkness, when lies are rampant and truth is denigrated, not only is it not appreciated, but it's actually denigrated. And it takes tremendous courage and tremendous strength to stand up to principles for principles and truth and conviction and reality and morality and ethics. When a Jew is able to penetrate this darkness, when the light of Hashem and the realization of Hashem, the faith in Hashem, when you're able to penetrate the darkness and realize that there's no other reality but God. And this gives you tremendous joy. And instead of looking at this world as a dark place, as a negative place, suddenly the world comes alive to you. It's a beautiful place. It's God's world. This world is absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. There is no other reality but God. And this actually gives you tremendous joy inside. It warms your heart. It warms your kishkes. This gives Hashem pleasure to no end. Imagine the joy, the simcha, the nachas that Hashem gets that we're able to penetrate the dark. When despite this darkness... A Jew still yearns for Mashiach, a Jew still talks about Mashiach, a, still be- a Jew still believes in Mashiach, which means one thing, that a Jew hasn't forgotten about godliness. A Jew who doesn't talk about Mashiach, who doesn't think about Mashiach, who doesn't believe in Mashiach, means he forgot about godliness. Yes, he may go through the motions, is quote-unquote religious, but he lost his soul on the way, along the way. There's no soul, there's no divine, there's no, nothing godly, it's just rituals, customs, very external, very superficial. But when a Jew, despite all the odds and despite all the darkness, when a Jew is thinking about Mashiach and talking about Mashiach and yearning for Mashiach, and this animates his life, and this motivates him to continue to grow as a Jew and to do whatever is in our power, 
to hit that grand slam and to, to create, do that last mitzvah and create that critical mass in the entire world. This gives Hashem such joy. This is the light that comes out of the darkness. This is the tremendous joy that comes because of the darkness. That's why we didn't choose our situation. We didn't choose the exile. There's a divine plan here. God has thickened. With the passing of time, the darkness has thickened. And we are now at the point, just like the Jewish people before they left Egypt. That was the model, the role model for all future generations. The, the redemption of Egypt. The, what was the last moment before the exile, before the redemption, the ultimate, the tenth plague? What was the ninth plague? Darkness. First, you had a regular darkness, the first three days of the plague, and the last three days, the Torah says, <coughs> you can touch the darkness. It was so thick, you can slice it with a knife. People were paralyzed. They couldn't move. For three days, the Egyptians were paralyzed. It was such a darkness that it paralyzed everyone. And yet, it, the Torah says, for the Jewish people, it was all lit up. Imagine the joy that, that Hashem gets when He sees a world that's so dark, that's so spiritually upside down, that's so spiritually corrupt and distorted, that some people wouldn't know the meaning of truth if it stared them in the face, because everything is so distorted and everything is so untruthful. And yet, that a Jew is able to pierce through this darkness and penetrate through this darkness and really gets it and is able to connect with the divine, to connect with Hashem, and this faith, this Jewish faith, comes alive for the Jew, ignites within the Jewish heart, and you sense the reality of God, that God is with us, actual, here and now, present. This is reality now. And you live with that reality, and it animates you, and, and it, it gives you the, the uh, energy, and it gives you the ability to overcome anything, all the obstacles and all the left curves that are thrown at us constantly. Imagine the joy that did, that this gives Hashem. It gives Hashem. And therefore, we rejoice with God's rejoicing. We're excited. We're, we're happy about the fact that we can give God so much joy. We can give God so much nachas. So instead of bemoaning our situation, we realize the preciousness of our situation. That we have the ability, precisely because of the situation that we find ourselves, precisely because they grew up in Vilna, precisely because we are here in the Upper East Side in 2008, in our present circumstance, we have the ability to give Hashem so much nachas, so much joy. It's one thing if a Jew spoke about godliness when he left Egypt. Of course he spoke about godliness. He saw godliness. He just witnessed the ten plagues. He witnessed the splitting of the sea. He witnessed the manna. He witnessed the giving of the Torah. You were in a bubble in the clouds. You saw Moses. Or when a Jew believed in God when he came to the temple and he saw the ten miracles in the temple and in the Holy of Holies he had this unbelievable miracle and he had the error of prophecy. There were a million, two hundred thousand prophets in the error of prophecy for a thousand years. That's one thing you believe in God when you're in such a milieu. It's one thing when you're surrounded by Maimonides and by Rashi and all the Jewish greats and all these giants. Or until the age of the Shach and Taz when... All the Jewish authors were divinely inspired. It's one thing you lived in the time of the Baal Shem Tov and, and all the Hasidic greats and all the Hasidic masters, all those giants, when even the simple Balagola, the simple wagon driver, knew the whole Psalms backwards and forwards by heart. 
And when they would travel from city to city, they would constantly be saying the whole Psalms by heart. Today, finally, one rabbi knows the whole Psalms by heart. <laughs> so when you, realize, when you realize what a tragic generation we're in, spiritually tragic, what midgets we are, spiritually, and you realize the milieu that we live in, we're constantly bombarded with distraction, 24-7, constant distractions, and pulling us towards junk food, just like you have the McDonald's of the world, you have junk food, they also have junk lifestyle, it's the same thing. What was the name of the movie they, uh, they showed, uh, what happens when a person uh, was on a diet, a McDonald's uh, diet, for seven weeks, or how many Super weeks? Size. Super Size Me. How many weeks was he on that diet? What? A month. And he was a perfectly healthy person. By the time he was done, he had to be hospitalized, right? He became completely sick on a diet of junk food. Well, we are being fed a, dry, a diet of junk lifestyle. Fed by the same people who have their own agendas. They couldn't care less about you. It's just making money. And if it's going to kill you, what do we care? As long as the money keeps on flowing. And these are the same people that are pushing the junk lifestyle all around us. So when you realize you're living in the milieu that you're living in, such a very low-caliber milieu, but instead of being despondent when you realize that when a Jew, under these circumstances, despite the odds and despite the circumstances, nevertheless thinks about his faith in Hashem and lives that faith and feels that faith and feels the reality of Hashem, how Hashem is with us 24-7, the reality of Hashem, that we are absolutely unified in the absolute unity of God and that there's no other reality but God. And this becomes a living, breathing reality. God is not some abstract, otherworldly reality. God is here and now, immediate, actual, tangible, real. Once you realize that, you realize how much joy this gives Hashem, how much nachas this gives Hashem, that the light was able to penetrate the dark. The famous, famous parable, Rabbi Yisroka Barditchev, which is worth repeating. He explained the blowing of the shofar. Why we blow the shofar? So he gave a parable of a king who went hunting and he got lost from his party and he went deeper and deeper into the forest and the party couldn't find him and he was lost. It was at night and the king was, you know, was almost was going mad. He was never alone in his life and here he was lost in the middle of a dark forest no food, no nothing, it's raining it's pouring, wild animals at the third day he was about he was, he was like totally disheveled and finally he sees a little light in the forest he follows the light, he sees a little hut and there's a person living there alone he knocks on the door and the person opens the door and says thank God he says I am the king <laughs> The guy took one look at him. Yeah. He says, yeah, and I'm the queen of England. He's the king, right? The guy looked like a madman. He looked half mad at that time. But listen, a poor, a poor guy lost his mind. He's lost in the forest. He needs help. Uh, he doesn't care. So if he's mad, it's not an excuse not to help him. Says, sure, king, your, your highness, come in. He plays longer than please come in, your majesty. <laughs> he says, listen, I don't have much. Whatever I have, I'll share with you. He takes out a little hard bread that he has. He takes off his clothes, puts some straw by the fire, lies him down. And he gives him some soup. Anyway, the king sleeps. Next morning he wakes up, so refreshed. He says, listen, please tell me the way back to the highway, you know. And I'm telling you, I'm never going to forget this. You saved my life. When I come back to the palace, I'm going to remember. I said, sure, your highness, your majesty. He played along with A week later, carriage pulls up. The king sent the carriage. 
calls him to the palace. So let me tell you, all my life, I was born the prince, my father was a king. I always were exposed to the best, the finest, the finest chefs and the finest food and the best that money could buy. But trust me, that bread that you gave me in your house tasted better than the finest meals that my world-class chefs prepared in the palace. And that straw that you gave me was worth, felt better than the, the, the beds that I have, you know, the feathered beds. And he made him his minister. And then many years later, he sinned against him. The king was very angry at him and he wanted to hang him. But he had one last request, a dying man's request. He says, Your Majesty, do me one favor. Before you hang me, just put on the clothes that you were wearing then when I, when I found you. <laughs> and the king realized what he was telling him and he remembered and relived everything that happened to him and how this person saved his life. Because he said, if I had been in the forest for another, half, another day, that would have been the, I would have died. I mean, I would have gone mad. And uh, so he, he forgave him on his sins. So he says, so too, the story with the Jewish people, why we blow the shofar, because it reminds us of the blowing of the shofar at Sinai. When Hashem peddled the Torah to all the nations of the world, and they all rejected the Torah, they weren't interested. It was like a forest. God was lost in the forest. No, no one wanted it. But the Jew wanted him, accepted him. So we're asking Hashem when we're being judged, when our life is hanging on a thread, on Rosh Hashanah, we're asking God, please remember, remember why you fell in love with us in the first place. Remember at Sinai we were the only ones who, you know, who took you in. And... But the idea is that that's why the Torah was given to human beings, not to angels. The angels are like the ministers in the king's palace. Angelic, sublime, heavenly. A Jew in this world, a Jew mumbles a prayer, half understands what he's saying, mostly doesn't understand what he's saying, studies a little Torah, he's half asleep when he's learning, gives a little tzedakah. But you can't imagine the preciousness that the Torah that we do in this world, the mitzvah that we do in this world, because it's a coarse world, it's a materialistic world, it's an egotistical world. Angels have no ego, angels have no evil inclination. But when we live in a very egotistical world, in a very selfish, self-centered world, and yet despite all of that, a Jew is able to rise above it and is able to do the right thing, this gives Hashem infinite pleasure. That piece of bread is tastier than all the, the meals prepared in heaven, so to speak. And, and so when we make a place for God, we make a dwelling place for God, we, make, we, we have a little humble abode a little hovel, and, we, and God enters into our little hum, what can we offer Him already? But the fact that we allow God to enter into our hearts, into our minds, into our consciousness, and we become aware of Hashem, and this faith, and we become conscious of this faith, and it becomes a living, breathing faith for, faith for us, this gives Hashem so much pleasure. So how much more so when we're living in the time of exile, and as the exile deepens, and the darkness deepens, and the challenges become more challenging, and despite all of that, a Jew is still thinking about godliness, a Jew is still yearning for godliness, a Jew is still hoping for godliness. Imagine the joy that this gives to Hashem. So we rejoice with the fact that we can give Hashem so much joy and so much pleasure. We rejoice with the fact that we have the ability to evoke a personal response from God. We have such a personal relationship with God that we have the ability to evoke such a powerful response from within God. And to give God so much pleasure. And of course, that joy is so much greater than our personal joy. Because our personal joy is limited. We're finite. We're limited. 
But when you rejoice with the fact that God is rejoicing, God's, God's joy is infinite. So your joy then is infinite. So you're touching God's joy, you're touching something that's infinite. So this is enough to give you joy and enthusiasm and passion. And this is enough to rejuvenate you and invigorate you in your, in your service of Hashem, to go forward confidently and joyfully and overcome, continue to overcome all the challenges. Just knowing that you have this faith and you have this joy inside of you and that you have the ability to evoke this joy within God. Okay, let's learn it inside. Page 439, the middle of the page. This is so especially. This is especially so in the diaspora, where the atmosphere is unclean and is filled with klipot and sitra achra. There is no greater joy for God than the light and joy caused by transforming darkness into light, when the light has the superior quality acquired by coming out of the very darkness. Thus, when a Jew in the diaspora is pervaded with an awareness of God's unity, his joy is all the greater. It follows, too, that the more lowly is one's spiritual position, the greater the divine joy when he acquires an awareness of God's unity. So on the contrary, the more you realize our position, how low our position is, that only leads to a greater joy. The more you realize the preciousness of anything good, anything positive that we're doing. Because it's not only you appreciate light when there's darkness. When there's light, you don't appreciate it. Like the story of Chelem. They once asked the Chelem, the wise men of Chelem, what's superior, the sun or the moon? He said, of course the moon. He says, the sun shines during the day. It's light anyway. <laughs> the, moon, the moon lights at night. Now that's, that's something. <laughs> that's a light. <laughs> it's, not, it's not only you appreciate the sun and you appreciate the light when there's darkness. When there's no darkness, you don't appreciate light. If you're stuck in a forest and you're, it's pitch black, the tiniest light is so precious to you. Or like you're starving, you have nothing to drink. Every drop suddenly becomes so tasty and so precious. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's a different quality light. The light that comes out of darkness has a different quality to it. It's qualitatively different. That's why we see out of the black of our eye. God created it. We see out of the black of our eye. It's the light that comes out of the darkness that's much more intense, that's superior. When a child is programmed to want more to learn to see and it, it takes it in you know the way we develop from childhood and grow is precisely because of this strong gravitation to something that that opens up that that makes you think that that means you have to add to what's already there interesting yeah 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 it's a, a person always just like a person needs food to eat actually a person the brain needs constant nourishment. You always have to learn new things. Otherwise, the brain just atrophies. The brain is always uh, curious, but of course, nothing like children. Children absorb massive amounts of information. As a matter of fact, when we reach the age of six or seven, we actually stop learning. <laughs> children uh, absorb massive amounts of information. Um, they're almost like in the hypnotic state. They just have this ability to absorb so much. Um, and that's why the impressions that you leave in a child last forever. It's the foundation of the rest of their life because it's so deep. And there's nothing like childhood. Childhood is so precious. And Judaism always understood the value of education. It's not just babysitting a child, keeping them out of sight. 
because those years, as Freud said, three after three, four, it's all over. You know, that's 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 really it's the seed. You know, one scratch in the seed ends up in a crooked tree. You straighten out the seed, and you have a straight tree. The tiniest, slightest movement will have that effect. But but the brain, nevertheless, throughout our life, the brain needs information. It's like ear. You can't live without ear. The brain can't live without constantly learning new information, constantly challenging the mind, learning something new, um, something different. That's why we're always curious. Well, the human mind is always active, always curious, always want to learn more, always pushing the boundary, pushing the, the envelope. Uh, we're always trying to learn more. So yes, it's like light and dark, right? So you're trying to overcome the darkness. You want to learn more. <clears throat> but it's the light that comes out of the darkness that's really precious or an, an analogy of learning. It's like the difference between overcoming a question. Let's say you're learning and you have no questions. Everything is crystal clear the first time around. You can't compare it to the learning where you have to overcome a question. You're learning a subject and then you're stuck. It doesn't make sense. And it troubles you. And then you work through the question and then you get the answer. That learning is going to stay with you much deeper. And it's a different quality learning. That's why we have two, ba- two Talmuds. We have the Babylonian Talmud and we have the Jerusalem Talmud. The law follows, not the, Babylon, not the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. Because the Babylonian Talmud, what? The Jerusalem Talmud is much harder. The Jerusalem Talmud is short, very sweet, short, very few questions, straight to the point. It's like, a, it's like a brilliant illumination, but there's no darkness, there's no shade. Babylonian Talmud is much more tortured until it comes to a conclusion, it goes through eight questions and it works through every single question, but that's why it's much deeper. That's why it's much, much more genuine, much deeper, and the halacha follows the Babylonian Talmud. There's no learning. Take two people, a person who's born with a great head, great mind, and they understand things the first time around, they immediately get it. Could you compare that to the person who has to struggle through the concept? You can't compare it. The person who has to struggle through the concept they have a much deeper understanding of the concept. It's like a difference between well water and rainwater. Rainwater comes straight from heaven. Straight, divine, straight from heaven. Could you compare the richness, the mineral richness of rainwater to wellspring water? Wellspring water has to go through the sand, the dirt, the mud. It has to come through the ground. And because it goes through the ground, it comes out much richer. There's nothing as healthy as, as, as well water. Wellspring water is the best water in the world. Because it had to go through the darkness, it had to work through the dirt. And, the, and that's the way in life. That's why we have obstacles. Obstacles are not there. God didn't just make life fun. Okay, God, I'm going to give you an obstacle course and somebody's having fun here. Um, it's all for our benefit because it's only when you have to work through It's like in a relationship. Say a marriage is only as good as your first fight. <laughs> A relationship that never has a fight is, is very superficial. It's only when you have to overcome difficulty and you have to overcome challenge, that's when you're able to develop a truly satisfying relationship, a truly mature relationship. So it's in everything in life. The light that comes through the darkness, it's a qualitatively different light. You can't even compare. That's the way God set up this world. And this is the light that gives God pleasure. When God sees the light the breakthrough, that light was able to break through the darkness and overcome the darkness and even transform the darkness. As in the case of the, um, the dam, you know, when you try to stop water, 
water naturally flows very smoothly, very calmly. What happens when the dam blocks the water? The water becomes so intense and so powerful, if the dam is not strong enough, it's just going to burst through the dam. And then the water is like a roaring, mighty, roaring river. You better not be in the way. And everything that the dam flows with the water, and it, it, it sweeps everything in its path. And the same is with, with obstacles. When the soul in heaven is like, water flows calmly, smoothly, the soul is divine, the soul is godly, it sees godliness, it senses godliness, there's no obstruction. You don't need faith in heaven when you see God, you don't need faith. And then the soul descends into the body. And we live a human life, a very materialistic world. But the soul gets very agitated because the soul is a dam. Our egos get in the way. It doesn't allow the soul to express itself the way it would like to express itself. It doesn't allow it to touch the divine. The soul gets very agitated, intense and powerful. And then the soul breaks through the dam and overcomes the obstacle and discovers godliness with a vengeance and rediscovers our Jewishness with a vengeance. And then it's so passionate and so intense and so deep and so powerful, nothing can stand in the way. That's like the Baltruva. The Baltruva is much greater than the Tzaddik. That's why the Baltruva is greater than the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik never had any questions. The Tzaddik grew up in the straight and the narrow, was never exposed to anything negative, was never exposed to any darkness. The Tzaddik is a righteous one, the, the saintly one. He grew up as a Tzaddik, he grew up in the straight and the narrow, never sinned in his life. The Baltruva is the one who had to overcome sin, who had to overcome negativity, who had to overcome breakdown. And, and therefore they have an intensity and a passion that the tzaddik can only dream of. The tzaddik can never really uh, conceive of the level, the intensity of the Baltruva. So it's the same concept. This is the light that comes out of the darkness. When there's a question first and then comes the answer, it's a different light. Not only do you appreciate the light then, it's a different quality light. So this is the joy that, that we give to Hashem. We give God the tremendous joy when the light is able to triumph over the darkness, when goodness is able to triumph over evil, when truth is able to triumph over lies, and because it's a different, it's a different quality, it's a different joy, a tremendous joy. Because it's a novelty, it's unexpected. It's like when the parrot speaks. What does the king find entertaining? When the parrot speaks, the king, the king finds it very entertaining. When the king needs a distraction, you bring a parrot. Because it's a novelty. You don't expect the parrot to speak. It's very delightful. It's very entertaining. When people speak, you want to cry. But when the parrot speaks, when the parrot speaks, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. It's fun. It's, it's, it's entertainment. Even, even Einstein will be entertained. Even the greatest king will be entertained. Because you don't expect it. So when we're in exile, in a time of exile, in a place of exile, outside the land of Israel, in the deepest, darkest exile, when the whole world is spiritually in a very oppressive, spiritually oppressive environment, where the darkness is so thick, and yet we're speaking. We're like the parrot that's speaking. How can we compare our prayers to the prayers of Rabbi Akiva? We're like the parrot in comparison to the person. Could you compare our, our learning Torah, our understanding of Torah, to the understanding of the greats, of the earlier rabbis? We're like midgets. You know, someone used to say the difference between the older generation and our generation. He says, they, they could eat anything. In those days, who knows what they ate? But their stomachs were made of rock and their head was made of silk. So by us, it's the reverse. 
<laughs> so we have, so we have, <laughs> so we have, we have very sensitive stomachs and <laughs> hard heads. So I mean, how can, we're like the parrot that's speaking. How could you compare our our understanding and our feelings and our it's so superficial. How could you compare it to the depth of the, the authentic feelings that our ancestors had, the depth, the passion? They, they, had, they were madly in love with God. It was, it was a different reality. And to us, we're so superficial. But yet, this parrot speaking is so delightful to God. It's so pleasurable. It's so unexpected. You don't expect a Jew growing up in this milieu in our day and age and exposed to everything that's out there. And yet, we're praying. And yet... We're studying Torah, and yet we're giving tzedakah, we're acting selflessly, and yet we're doing the right thing, and yet we believe in Mashiach, and we love each other, we care for each other. This is unexpected. This gives God so much joy. It's indescribable, the joy that we're able to give God. And you have to realize that, and you have to appreciate it, and you have to rejoice in God's joy. You have to be excited the fact that God is getting so much joy and so much nachts. So when you're riding on that train, when you're riding on God's joy, you're like, you're like piggybacking on God's joy, which is infinite. Imagine the joy that you can experience. That lifts you up. Then what obstacle? How could there be an obstacle in your path? An obstacle in my path to study Torah, to do mitzvah, to do the right thing, when I know what's at stake, I know how much joy I can give God by doing the right thing. All the obstacles just melt away. Difficulties, obstacles. Nothing gets in my way. Okay. We have seen so far then that one's faith in God's unity leads him to a twofold joy joy in his closeness to God and joy in the knowledge that his faith brings joy to God. This is the meaning of the verse let Israel rejoice in its maker. Note the expression maker, not creator or the like. Whoever is of the seed of Israel ought to rejoice in the joy of God, who is happy and joyous with his abode amongst the creatures of the lower spheres who are on the level of actual physical asiya. The word translated in its maker, ba'osav, shares a common root with asiya, the lowest level of creation. With this abode in particular ought Israel rejoice knowing that God's joy is especially great when the creations in Asiya, the very lowest world, become an abode for him. When he says that Israel rejoices in its maker, it means that we rejoice in God's joy. God rejoices in the fact that he made us, meaning that he made us that he sends us into this world of action, into the lowest of all the worlds, into the spiritually lowest of all the worlds, the lowest ranking world, in this very materialistic world. And there's a reason why God created the world of ours as he created. It's not by accident that we live in a very egotistical world and that naturally we're all very egotistical and and self-centered and self-absorbed. He created us that way. It's not we created ourselves this way. It's not our choice. That's why God created us. And there's a reason He created us this way. Because it's only in this setting that we can give Him so much pleasure. So we rejoice in the fact that God is rejoicing with His creatures. With the fact that despite that we're in this world of action, we are connecting with the divine and connecting with godliness and doing the divine and living the divine and, and living with His faith and the sense of, of Hashem. So this gives, this is, we rejoice with His joy. 
So in addition to our own personal rejoicing, we rejoice because God is rejoicing with us. God is getting so much pleasure and so much nachas. This explains why it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, it seems to be a contradiction. On one hand, it says in Ethics of Our Fathers that one moment in the world to come surpasses all the pleasures of this world all put together. If you live like King Solomon, and you live for a thousand years, and you're able to indulge in every physical pleasure you can possibly imagine, all those pleasures added up together is nothing in comparison to one moment of spiritual bliss. When the soul in heaven experiences spiritual bliss, it's like a person who imagined Einstein's pleasure on discovering the theory of relativity. Is there any physical pleasure in the world that can compare to the pleasure, that earth-shattering revelation, when he single-handedly overturned all of physics? You can imagine the pleasure that that discovery gave him. So all the physical pleasure in the world can't compare to a more sublime pleasure. No, but I don't agree because he was so smart that he arrived at this kind of pleasure. But uh, for instance, like in my research, I can be also... Uh, very happy with my small uh, finding, you know, everyone with his own mind and everyone with his own way of pleasure. So you can, you can use an analogy from your own life. There are many pleasures we have in our life. There's a pleasure of good music. A person who has a taste in music, who has a pleasure of music, it's much more refined and it's much more pleasurable than any materialistic pleasure. A person who takes pleasure in doing kindness to others. There are kind people who just get pleasure from doing kindness to others. Now, that pleasure is so much greater than any materialistic pleasure. A person who also is a person of the mind and thinks, is a thinking person and likes to figure things out, when he, when he has on his own level a breakthrough that he figures something out that he couldn't figure out for a long time and suddenly he figures it out, the, the pleasure is indescribable. It's much greater than any material pleasure. How much more so a spiritual pleasure, a person who has a spiritual sensitivity, and when you have a spiritual revelation, that really earth-shattering revelation that, that opens your whole being, it's so undescribable. Imagine the pleasure when the soul leaves the body and the soul is in heaven. So a moment of spiritual pleasure is so much greater than all the materialistic pleasures all put together. That's one mission. Then within the same breath, the Mishnah says that one moment of Torah and mitzvot in this world exceed and surpass all the pleasures of the world to come all put together, of, of the heavens, of the Garden of Eden all put together. So make up your mind. One moment in this world is worth more than all of the Gan Eden, all of the Garden of Eden put together. One moment of pleasure in the Garden of Eden is worth more than all the pleasures in this world. It's not a contradiction at all. We're talking about two different things. When you talk about your individual pleasure, your soul's pleasure, of course, how could you compare? The more spiritual you get, the pleasure is so much deeper, so much more intense. So you can't compare all the physical pleasures in this world in comparison to, 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 to the spiritual pleasure. But when you do Torah, when you study Torah and you do mitzvot, who's getting pleasure? God is getting pleasure. God is infinite. Could you compare your finite pleasure? Even your soul's pleasure in a disembodied soul in heaven, could you compare all that pleasure in heaven? That's still a finite pleasure. Your soul is finite. It's, it's, it's incomparable. To the, to the, it's incomparable to the pleasure, the infinite pleasure that God gets. When we living in this world, body and soul, go ahead and do a mitzvah. 
So that pleasure is infinite. He can't compare finite pleasure to infinite pleasure. And that's why it says there's a whole argument amongst the rabbis. It was a raging argument. Whether it was worth it for a person to be created or wasn't <laughs> worth it for a person to be created. And they all decided after much debate, the consensus was, it's better, it would have been better if a person was not created. But now that you're created, make the best of it. Make sure that you do the right thing. So what do you mean? So if you look carefully at the language of the rabbis, it says, Noyach loy. For the individual, for the person's soul, it would have been better not to be created. The soul in heaven was much happier. The soul was in a sublime environment. The soul was in heaven. There was no ego. There was love. There was goodness, kindness. So for the soul, it would have been much better had the soul not journeyed into the body. For the soul coming into the body, being trapped in the body... It's a very traumatic experience. It's like a, a journey from the it's like a roller coaster ride from the peak to the abyss. It's a it's a, from the from the peak to the basement, to the deepest depth. It's it's very traumatic for this for the soul. So for the person himself, noyach It would have would have been better if you were not created. But why were we created? Not for us. It gives God tremendous pleasure. The fact that we come into this world, and that we struggle and that we overcome the darkness, and that we penetrate the darkness, and that we see through the darkness, and we figure out the riddle and the enigma, and we figure it out, the puzzle, and we sense God, and we start living with His faith, this gives God infinite pleasure, and He can't compare. So the pain is almost insignificant in comparison to the pleasure. Because once you connect to the divine pleasure, it elevates the soul to a level that the soul could never achieve. That's why the soul has to come down to this world. Otherwise, why does the soul have to journey into this world? If it's such a traumatic experience of the soul, if life is such a traumatic experience of the soul, and life is so filled with danger, it's so easy to lose your way, it's so easy to get distracted, it's so easy to lose sight and focus of what's important and what's real and what's not real, and we get so, it's so hypnotic, we get so hypnotized, and we get so busy and distracted, we forget, we lose our minds, we lose our heads, we drown, we forget what life is all about. So it's so dangerous, it's so risky. Why take such a gamble? And the answer is it's all worthwhile. Because the returns, if you do get it right, the investments, the dividends, the returns are so infinite that it elevates the soul. Every time a soul studies Torah in this world, when we, living in this world, study Torah, do a mitzvah, give a penny to tzedakah, it elevates the soul to such heights because now we're touching the divine pleasure. Now we're reaching something that's infinite. So the soul is elevated in the process. So therefore, it's all worthwhile. For this reason, the plural form, ba'osav, is used. The literal meaning of the verse is, let Israel rejoice in its makers. Why the use of a plural expression in reference to God? The Alter Rebbe explains that since God is spoken of here as the maker of the world of Asiya, the domain of Klipot, whose nature is arrogance and therefore separation and self-centeredness, the divine creative power is referred to in the plural, for it is fragmented, so to speak. There is a multitude of created beings, each separate from the other, each animated by the divine creative power, hence a plurality of makers, so to speak. But this fault becomes a cause for still greater divine joy when these separate beings at the level of Asiya unite in God's unity. This unification of creation is another achievement of man's faith in God's unity. For this faith subdues the Sitra Achra, which causes disunity. 
As stated above, it is the earlier darkness which enhances the light that replaces it. Thus, the greater the darkness, the more superior the subsequent light. In the Alter Rebbe's words, the plural expression makers refers to our physical world that is filled with klipot and sitra achra, which are called a public domain, i.e. a domain of multiplicity and mountains of separation, in that they are arrogant and separate from one another. God's joy in the fusion of this plurality is aroused when through this faith in God's unity they, the klipot, are transformed into light, and they become a private domain, i.e. a unified realm for God's unity. So what gives God tremendous pleasure is when, when we subdue the klipa, the shell, the other side, and the world that we live in is called a public domain, meaning that klipa is fragmented. Everyone naturally is egotistical, and ego, ego, ego separates and divides. You have six billion egos. Everyone is a world apart. Versus holiness unites. When you become divine-centered, instead of being ego-centered and I-centered, it unites. That's why we find, it says in the temple, one of the ten miracles were that they, when they stood, they were packed. But when they bowed down, Yet when they bowed down, when they heard God's name, everyone prostrated themselves on the floor, spreading out their hands and the feet and lying down. There was room for everyone to prostrate themselves. So on a deeper level, what this means is, when people are stiff, standing stiff, when people are egotistical, there's no room for everyone. Everyone is squished. Everyone feels the other one is taking up my space. The other one is making me uncomfortable. When you bow down, when you transcend above your ego, when you go beyond your ego, there's room for everyone. Like we find at the beginning of creation, you know who the head of the first uh, UN Commission for World Overpopulation was? His name was Cain. There were exactly... <laughs> there were exactly four people in the world. It was Adam and Chava and Cain and Abel. And he felt the world was overpopulated. We're polluting the world. There's not enough resources to go around. And he decided to do something about it. So he goes on. Like we had this, uh, this brilliant fellow, I forgot his name. It was on radio. And I, I was, you have to pinch yourself to hear that they even quote such nonsense. And he was saying with a serious face, he believes that the answer to the... To the, um, to the, um, what? No, the, the answer to the, to the global warming is we must reduce the world population by a quarter. A reincarnation of Cain. And so he felt he's going to single-handedly take matters in his own hand. He's going to reduce the world. In a way, he was the biggest murderer because he killed a quarter of the world population. He killed Abel, his twin brother. That's what happens when you're egotistical. When you're egotistical, another human being gets in your way. He's eating up my food. He's taking away my resources. He's warming up the world. Could you imagine such thinking? Verses. When there's holiness and you're divine-centered and you realize that God created every human being. There isn't a single human being in this world that's extra. It's like having an orchestra and removing, removing the drummer, removing one of the players. The whole orchestra is lacking. God created this whole world as a finely tuned orchestra. Every aspect in this world is here by divine providence plays an indispensable role in the grand scheme of things. Nothing in this world is here by accident. 
So you think there's one human being that's just born by accident? God forbid. Every human being plays an indispensable role and it's part of the divine plan. Every blade of grass, every aspect of this world. So how heartless and soulless could a person be? He's hugging the tree and he wants to depopulate the world and, and kill off a quarter of the world population. <laughs> well, maybe if he wouldn't have been born, maybe it would have helped the world population. But, I mean, just, just, just this thinking, this thinking, this, this corrupt thinking, and yet it's, in the name, it's wrapped in the name of morality. He thinks of himself as a very moral person. I mean, it's, just, it's just a sign of the times that we're living in. The darkness that's so thick, when people are clueless in right and wrong and good and evil and have no concept of right and wrong and truth and falsehood, I mean, this is being peddled as, as morality. As, this is a reincarnation of Cain, the soul of a murderer, the heart of a murderer. But when a person is egotistical, another human being is taking away from me. He's taking away my resources. So we must have family planning. We can't have too many children in this world. We look as children, God forbid, as a curse. This is the upside-down thinking, the Orwellian, Orwellian thinking that we're living in. So it goes into it. But when you're, when you're connected to the divine, when you're divine-centered, you realize what's a blessing. Life is a blessing. Life is a divine gift. You don't act, you don't act as if you're God. You realize you don't control. Life is a miracle. And as much as we think we control, it's just our habri. We control less than 0.1% of reality. Most of reality is so beyond our conception. We have no clue of the food that we ate this morning, how it's digested, the miracle of the body. is so infinitely complex. Trillions of cells. It's impossible for us even to begin to conceive the complexity, the ordinary complexity of our bodies. So we have the habri that we're in charge and we're in control and we're deciding who lives and who dies and who will be born and who won't be born. I mean, this is madness. It's, it's totally illogical. But this is the world that we live in. It's a fragmented world. It's a very egotistical world. And it distorts your vision. And you lose track of what's right and what's wrong. When you start acting like God, you destroy the world. But when you have the humility to be God-centered, and you have the humility to realize that there's no other reality but God, and God is the reality first and center, front and center, beginning, middle and end, in and out, God is within all reality. and He transcends all reality simultaneously and there is no other reality but God, then you become a partner with God in creation. Then you become someone that in, brings joy into this world, that brings blessing into this world, that brings life into this world, that brings goodness into this world, that brings wholesomeness into this world. You can't bring wholeness and goodness into this world if you yourself are so internally fragmented, if you yourself are so egotistical. So this is the world that God created. God created Osav in the plural. He created a world that's very fragmented, that's very dark. And intentionally so. God created this world intentionally so. Because this is the divine purpose. That a Jew should enter into this world, into this environment, and, and yet oh, rise above the circumstances. Rise above the environment and come to the realization, the truth of the reality of God and transform this world from a public domain to a, a private domain. And with this we understand a very puzzling midrash. The midrash says that a, a heretic asked Rabbi Akiva. He says, since God practices what he preaches, how can God run the world on Shabbat? 
you're not allowed to carry on Shabbat. How does God cause rain? God has to keep, keep the mitzvot. Right? Very good question. So Rabbi Kiva said, because to God, the whole world is his private domain. So in the private domain, you're allowed to carry. We're not allowed to carry because you're not allowed to carry from a public domain into a private domain. But for God, this world is his private domain. So he's allowed to carry. Okay. Does that answer the question? Carrying is one of the 39 categories of work. So you answered carrying. How about pla- sowing and, 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 and uh, bringing rain down in the field? You're causing the grass to grow. That's one of the things that's forbidden on Shabbat. You're not allowed to cause, cause grass to grow. So the same question. God practices what he preaches. God is not keeping Shabbat. He's running the world. And the world runs on Shabbat just like it runs on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. There's no difference. What? No time for Hashem. It's all Shabbat. So, so you're making the question even worse. So how, how could it rain on Sunday? <laughs> but Shabbat. Shabbat is Shabbat. God rested on Shabbat. Six days a week he created, the seventh day he rested. So there is a, for, for Hashem, that's where we take Shabbat from Hashem. There is six days in the Shabbat. So how can God, and the answer is, where do we learn the 39 categories of work from? We learn it from the temple, the Mishkan, the tabernacle. There were 39 categories of work that they did in order to create the tabernacle and to enable the service in the tabernacle. So the Torah tells us anything that you did for the tabernacle, you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. So what's the difference between the tabernacle and the weekday? The tabernacle is a holy place. It's a place where you sense godliness. So there, all the work that you're doing is holy. When does work become a problem? Work only becomes a problem when you do it outside of the temple. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when you're creating, and it gets to your head. I'm a creator, I'm a mover, I'm a shaker, I'm a macher, I'm in charge, I'm in control. It gets to your head. So one day you have to take a rest. What's the theme of Shabbat? The theme of Shabbat is on Shabbat, we realize that it's God's world. This whole world is God's world. We're not, the, we're not in control, we're not in charge. We give our egos a rest. It's a day of rest. We give our egos a rest. We stop playing God. We realize the miracle. We eat. On Shabbat, it's a mitzvah. We eat on Sunday, it's no mitzvah. On Shabbat, it's a mitzvah. Because you realize the miracle of eating, of swallowing, of eating. Everything that you do on Shabbat, you take a walk. It's a miracle. The fact that you're able to walk. You realize that the miracle of life, the miracle of existence, you don't take anything for granted. Existence itself you don't take for granted. You celebrate the miracle of existence. You realize that it's God's world. And God is in control. And God is in charge. And this arrogance and this habri that we have, we're in charge and we're in control and we play God and we act like God and we're movers and shakers. On Shabbat we're cured from that uh, illusion. Shabbat we recognize the truth. And we come back to that core central truth that this world is God's world. Once you realize it's God's world, in the temple, in the tabernacle, all the work was holy. So when God is causing rain and God is causing the plants to grow on Shabbat, it, it's, this was the answer of Akiva. For God, this whole world is a private domain. For God, there's no concealment. There's no darkness. It's God's world. And therefore, everything is holy. Everything is beautiful. It only becomes a problem when you become a creator and it gets to your head. And you think, oh, I'm a creator. I'm already playing God. I'm acting like God. And I think I'm God. So that's why Shabbat, you have to take a day of rest. But when it's clear that everything is God's domain, then 
there is no problem. So this is the mission of a Jew. The mission of a Jew is to transform this egotistical, fragmented world, selfish, self-centered world, and to transform it into a place, a unit where God says, I feel at home. A home for God. Where God says, I feel at home. And it's God's private domain. And godliness is manifest. And you sense godliness. Because everything depends on us. We are a microcosm of the whole entire world. If God rests within us, and that's the key of the whole chapter, if God rests within us on a conscious level, we sense God, we sense the reality of God, it becomes a living, breathing reality for us that there's no other reality other than God, and it gives us tremendous joy and enthusiasm, for real, it will change the whole world. We will change the whole world. Because the world is a reflection. Whatever goes on inside of our hearts immediately impacts the macrocosm. So if we change inside and godliness becomes, penetrates through our consciousness and we're able to sense and to feel, palpably feel godliness and the truth and the reality, there's not the reality but God. And we're able to rejoice with that faith and we're able to rejoice with the fact that God is rejoicing with our faith, then the world becomes an open place. Godliness becomes visible, felt, manifest. And then this world does become and will become a godly place, a holy place, a wholesome place. This world doesn't have to be a jungle. The jungle that it is. It doesn't have to be this way. Life doesn't have to be this way. It's our choice. This world could be the holiest of all the worlds. This world could be a wonderful place, a loving place, a caring place, a healing place, a kind place, a wholesome place, a good place. It doesn't have to be corrupt. It doesn't have to be decadent. The irony is, and this is the irony of ironies, it's like, it's like anyone who ever tasted organic fruits. It's hard to go back to the synthetic fruits. Because the irony is, it's, it's not only healthier, it tastes better. But all you're fed, we're fed of a, a diet of garbage, of junk. All in the name of science. And the same is with the life that we're living, or that we're being fed to. A very synthetic, a very, really junk life. But when a Jew lives a Torah life, 100%, a Torah life, a wholesome life, it's tasty, it's delicious, it's great, it's wonderful, it's pleasurable, it's joyful. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. And then it's hard to go back to, to that nonsense. Well, why would I go back to something f- superficial and false and ridiculous? So, but you have to have strength to overcome the obstacles. Once you have the strength, you overcome the obstacles, then you realize... And the strength comes from... Strength comes from within because we have that faith. We're born with that faith. We inherited that faith. We don't have to create that. That's the good news. You don't have to create any strength. The strength comes from because we inherited that strength. Our parents were strong for 3,800 years. To be able to survive the exiles, to be able to survive what the Jewish people survived and went through. No one else on earth went through Holocaust and pogroms and Chalmanitsky and destructions and exiles. And we're still here because our parents for 3,800 years, without any interruption, were strong. So it's flowing within our veins. We have that strength. Where does our strength come from? From Hashem. When you're connected to Hashem and you realize that there's no other reality but God, then nothing could deter you. There's no force in the universe that's strong enough to diminish your enthusiasm or to stop you. One iota. Nothing. The Jew is unstoppable. And our connection to Hashem, no one can interfere with our connection to Hashem. Nothing. And no one. No circumstances. There are no obstacles. Because this is truth, this is reality, and we embrace it wholeheartedly and we live it 
And once you realize it, then it's a joyful life. It's a wonderful life. It's a rewarding life. And when we are connected, and I'll conclude with this, we met a, uh, a healer. She lives here in Manhattan, a Russian healer. She's actually an energy healer. Her father was Jewish. She's not Jewish. Her mother's not Jewish. She's 100% not Jewish. Her father was Jewish. And she was diagnosed with a, with a uh, fatal illness in her early 20s. She went to India to study by the true masters. And she now, she's now in her 50s, and she's well, and she's healing many, many people. She didn't tell me the details. She went, she went to India. She studied by the masters in India. Not only was she healed, she learned to become a, a healer herself. And she, she goes like twice a year for a month. She goes to Jerusalem. She says, Jerusalem is the most powerful energy in the universe. And she tells all the Jewish friends. She says, I don't understand. You're Jewish. Why, why don't you appreciate who you are, where you're from? She says, let me tell you something. When I studied in India by the true masters, they told me that they have a tradition. He says, we had a tradition from our grandmasters going all the way back that the world will never become whole until the Jew becomes whole. When the Jew gets their act together and the Jew becomes centered and connected, when the Jew becomes, comes together, that's when the whole world will fall into place. This is what she received from her Indian masters. So when we are the microcosm. If the Jew has his act together, and the Jew is connected to the divine in a conscious way, in a very palpable way, and we live that life with joy, with vigor, with enthusiasm, and nothing can get in our way, then the whole world becomes a joyful place, a unified place. God's presence becomes manifest and felt. And suddenly you sense that it's it's a private, it's God's private domain, it's his home. It's a loving place, it's a kind place, it's a good place. It doesn't have to be decadent. Life doesn't have to be decadent, doesn't have to be degenerate, doesn't have to be external and superficial. Life could be meaningful and wonderful and wholesome and pleasurable and rewarding and loving and good and kind. It's all up to us. To be continued.